I'm your host, Jim Gersh. Alongside me is my co-host, Kyle Weinmeyer. This is a brand new sports podcast where we'll be covering the NBA, NFL, MLB, college football, and college basketball. We have a variety of topics to get through on this first episode, and I'll let Kyle, our co-host, get us started today. Thank you, Gersh. I appreciate that. Uh, we're going to start off this episode talking about the NBA, and I want to bring our attention to the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, they currently sit at 23-25 and 25 in the Western Conference, and they're a team with two all-star caliber players on this squad with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, though neither have played recently. Uh, Kawhi's been out all year. Paul George has been out for less than that, but still quite a while. And my big question for you, though, is while they have two all-star caliber players, would you say they have two superstar caliber players? And what do you think going forward with, with this squad? Yeah, I think the Clippers are in an interesting in an interesting spot, honestly, because they haven't been fully healthy all year. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of question marks with Kawhi Leonard going forward if he'll even play this year. I know they're hoping he does make it back at some point this season, but there's a lot of question marks there. And then it just also regards around if if Paul George is that guy that we all know he can be. If he's if he can play to that level that the Clippers want him to play at, that he you know really played at in Oklahoma City, and really that he kind of played at at the beginning of this year, kind of an MVP level. But when he comes back from this injury, can he can he provide that? And um, can the players around Paul George get a, him enough production to kind of roll around and get some comfortability with the offense and get them out of that bottom half of that Western Conference and kind of get a lot higher than what they need? What do you think about it, Kyle? Yeah, I think Paul George can be that guy. Uh, I think if you watched him the first couple months of this season, how he was carrying the Clippers, whenever people were talking about the MVP race, Paul George is a guy who would come up in that conversation. Uh, he was playing extremely well, and so I think if he's able to come back, that's going to be a huge boost to them. But my bigger question would be if Kawhi's actually coming back. I know – with the injury that he had, in theory, the timeline will end up where he could come back and a lot of superstars or a lot of players would come back. But Kawhi's always been a guy who's been very cautious with his health. So even if he's fully ready to come back on, say, mid-April, I don't know if he's actually going to come back, uh, which I think is probably the bigger question for the Clippers roster. I think Without Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, they've been able to kind of hold their ground, which is pretty impressive. I think that's actually going to bode well for their future if they're able to get both of them back, that a lot of these younger guys that they have can hopefully fill in the roles that maybe they wouldn't have been able to start of the year with this experience. But I just don't know if Kawhi is actually going to come back with his history and how he typically handles injuries and such, which speaking of the matter, speaking of potentially coming back, uh, another hot topic with the NBA trade deadline coming up would be Ben Simmons. Uh, now he's hasn't played all year, obviously, in Philadelphia. I, I don't know if you'd call it a holdout, per se, uh, like you might in some sports, but nevertheless, he hasn't played yet this year. And with the trade deadline coming up in less than a month, there's been a lot of rumors, will he be traded, won't he be traded? What do you think happens? Yeah, I personally believe that uh, Ben Simmons will be moved, and I think it happens the day of the deadline. 
Uh, there's a lot of things really rolling around that 76ers team. You know, Ben Simmons is a talent that, you know, almost anybody would want on their team. I know a lot of people, you know, don't like him because he can't shoot the ball. But if you just, I mean, that's a big factor, obviously and clearly. But he brings such a, a dynamic uh, force uh, if you trade for him. And he brings a nice young piece. And I think he kind of needs that change of scenery, too, for his own career. I think it would be better for him to move on, and I think it's better for the 76ers to move on from him. I would say I think, uh, you know, there's a couple suitors out there. Maybe uh, the the Trailblazers is a big one, I really think, uh, would dig into getting Ben Simmons because I think they're headed towards a full rebuild here in the, in the near future. We've seen the Kings has had some interest. Um, and, the, and the Pacers, they turned down an offer from the Pacers. But personally, I think Ben Simmons is moved. Uh, by the deadline, and I think it will probably happen on deadline day because I just think uh, they're they're ready to be done with him personally, and uh, they're ready for a new era outside of Ben Simmons in Philadelphia. I disagree with you on this one. I think uh, I so far Philadelphia has had a pretty high asking price for Ben Simmons, and rightfully so. Um, he's a great player, and I don't see that budging. I think a lot of people assume it's just going to budge in the next two weeks. That Philadelphia is going to come down on their offer and eventually just trade them. Uh, or I guess maybe they people think that other teams are going to up their offers to come meet Philadelphia's asking price. That might be a more accurate way of looking at it. But I don't see it happening. Uh, to me, Ben Simmons is a guy you probably move in the offseason instead. Uh, even as of now, uh, you know, without Ben Simmons, Philadelphia is within three games of the top seed in the East. Uh, they're not necessarily struggling without him. Would whatever they get back from Ben Simmons help them? Uh, obviously, yes. Uh, whether it's a Damian Lillard, a CJ McCollum, anything like that, that would definitely you know be better than nothing than no Ben Simmons. But I, I think it's more likely to happen in the off season because I don't know who's going to. It, I guess it depends what Philadelphia's looking for. If they're looking for a young point guard, I just don't know if the matchup is out there for them. Unless Damian Lillard is available, I don't know. The other team, maybe the Kings, they have Halliburton, Fox, Davion Mitchell. Maybe something in there can entice Philadelphia. I don't know. Or even if the Kings would want to trade any of those young guys for Simmons. Uh, other landing spots that I've heard rumored, uh, Minnesota's one. Philadelphia, I've heard, doesn't have any interest in D'Angelo Russell, which makes sense. At that point, I don't think there's really any match there. Uh, another team would be the Pacers. Um, again, they have some bonus in Turner, but I don't think either of those really make sense with Embiid and Philly. And so I don't think Indiana's a match. Outside of that, I'm just not sure mid-season who exactly would be a good trade partner for Ben Simmons. I, and with that, I think it's more like that Philadelphia ways till the offseason you wait till the draft order is finalized and maybe you see like a draft day trade instead of a trade deadline trade for Ben Simmons. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of question marks of course with Ben Simmons um, and uh, they could find that deal uh, more so to their liking in the off season. I just, like I said, I think I just personally think that they're ready to 
move on. But I, you, you, you we also got to think, like you said, that uh, the asking price is very high, and they're not just going to give them away, obviously for nothing. So they're going to get back what they think they deserve. So if that means keeping them into the off season, they will definitely do that. Speaking of potentially keeping another guy into the offseason, this is something a lot of people were really critical of last offseason, but the Los Angeles Lakers went out and they acquired Russell Westbrook. He is an incredibly polarizing player. Uh, he is a tremendous individual talent. Uh, I don't know how he's able to sustain the effort that he does for 35 minutes a night with its he, he's a guy that actually plays max effort all the time. And I think it's pretty incredible to watch. That being said, he doesn't play great team basketball. And oftentimes the team he's on doesn't seem to reach the heights that they should with a player of his caliber. And so I don't know. There's only, like we said, two, three weeks till the trade deadline. If there's anything the Lakers can do there, or are they stuck with Russell Westbrook for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think uh, I. I mean, there's a lot of questions. I think there's even more bigger question marks with Russell Westbrook and moving forward than the Ben Simmons and the 76ers. Sixers, uh, because like you said, Russell Westbrook's such a polarizing type of guy on and off the court, and you know, you know when they traded for him, everyone was very critical of of the trade and. Was he going to mesh with AD and LeBron James on the floor? And just we haven't seen that uh, in fruition yet. And, I mean, there's you can still give it some more time, but there's at a point during the season where you're like, time is running out. The Lakers have had a ton of injuries as well. And Russell Westbrook just hasn't stepped up and been that guy for the Lakers with, you know, as much as these injuries that have, that have occurred to that team. And I think – uh, that here in the near future they'll look to move Russell Westbrook, but then again, it's going to be so hard to move him because of the contract that he comes with, and you're going to have to take back almost another contract like that. And really, the only deal that would make any remote sense that matches up would be for John Wall. But um, you know, the Lakers. I think that John Wall's a better fit for the Lakers, but. That's the thing is how much is John Wall going to be on the floor for the Lakers? And as their serious interest in the Rockets taking Russell Westbrook back, you know, that's a rumor that just came out a couple of days ago. And, you know, if the Rockets do that, I, I mean, I don't know what direction the Rockets are going in. That's just a, that's just a weird move in my opinion for the Rockets to do. But if that, if that's off the table, I just don't know where you could send Russell Westbrook. It, it would be a tough situ- – it's it's a tough situation for the Lakers going forward because I think they know that they're not going to have success going deep into the postseason with Russell Westbrook on their squad. Yeah, I agree. Uh, especially with the contract that he has. I think he's a harder move than Ben Simmons, particularly because while Philadelphia might not want to trade Ben Simmons, they've at least had discussions with teams about him over the course of last offseason, earlier this season, up till now. Russell Westbrook's a guy that Los Angeles acquired a, to be part of their big three, along with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. He's not a guy they had ever planned on shopping, especially a couple months after they acquired him. So any of these teams that would even inquire for Russell Westbrook, they're starting from scratch. 
And like you said, with his contract, that's going to be so incredibly hard to match um, in terms of returning salary that I think he's kind of stuck there until the end of the year. And then maybe he's a guy that would be traded in the offseason when some contracts come off the books and cap space opens up. And I think it's a fascinating part of this whole Russell Brushbrook thing, for me at least, is that we know he was acquired by Los Angeles, particularly because LeBron James wanted to play with him. That's kind of how LeBron James' teams are run. It's where he wants the guy, or he has to prove with the guy, and that's what happens. But everywhere he's been, it seems like people want to play with Westbrook until they do. Yep. It, you look at Durant loved playing with him, and then what? Same thing with Paul George. Wanted to play with him, then left. Then you look in Washington. Bradley Beal happened there, and then that blew up. It's really interesting that some people on the outside think that he's not a good fit on teams, but then the players within the game always want to play with them. It's, I don't know, I, I think it's fascinating to me, at least. It is definitely a, it's definitely a fascinating situation, just that what the... It's a fascinating situation because he's such a great talent, and then you go play with him, and then, you know, I think people honestly kind of feel bad that they don't mesh with him because he's such a great talent, and I think he's got a great, a great personality with the players off the floor that they they are uh, upset that it didn't work out because they do they do like it and it just it doesn't mesh on the floor and it's uh, it's upsetting to see for them I think. Yeah, it he just doesn't have a great uh, style of team basketball. He's a very inefficient scorer. You know, he doesn't shoot the three very well. He's a guy who he'll score a lot, but he's going to take a lot of shots. And then, yeah, he gets assists, but he's also are those at the expense of a lot of turnovers. Um, and while he gets a lot of rebounds, is that really something you want your point guard going out of the way to get the rebounds? It's, they're not bad that he gets the rebounds per se, obviously, because you want rebounds. But I just don't know if his skill set is exactly what teams are looking for. Yeah, and moving along with things here, uh, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Let's uh... – dig into the the NFL playoff games over the this this past weekend. There were some exciting games, much better than the week before that we witnessed. Um, let's start off with the the Cincinnati Bengals at Tennessee. Uh, the Bengals come in and steal the one seed and take home a win and you know just kind of shock the world. And I know you got some great thoughts about how Tennessee played down the stretch or really just throughout the whole game how Vrabel uh, took care of things. So I'll let you get it started. I'll let, let you get us started on this one. Yeah. I, for the record, uh, coming into the game, I predicted that Tennessee was going to win this game by double digits. I think they were the better team. I think they were more well-rounded. Because uh, they actually have a sneaky good defense, I don't think people realize. Along with getting Derrick Henry back and plus a healthy Julio Jones and A.J. Brown, I thought this was going to be pretty easy for Tennessee, especially at home, being the one seed, too much victorious. However, I absolutely hate their game plan. It felt like they almost just wanted to coast through this game and they didn't actually want to win. Uh, and what I mean by that is there are plenty of times where I thought they should have been more aggressive. Uh, it started for me pretty early on in the game. In the first quarter, they had 4th and 11 from Cincinnati's 39. Now, I know it's 4th and 11, but I don't think you should ever punt from your opponent's 39. That, that just... The expected return on that is 
not very much. So I think it's worth it to go for that. But then even later on in the game, when they did decide to go for it on fourth down, what did they do? Well, it was a simple Derrick Henry run up the middle. Well, I don't know about you, Gersh, but if I'm the defensive coordinator on a fourth and one, what am I looking for? Probably Derrick Henry up the middle. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't get me wrong, Derrick Henry, incredible talent, big and physical. And yes, he's hard to stop, but if you're expecting it, it's a lot easier to stop. You contrast that to, say, the Bills-Chiefs game. Look how those two teams attacked fourth down. There were a lot of getting Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes moving in the pocket, you know, trying to confuse the defense a little bit. And, you know, lo and behold, those teams were successful being aggressive. It's pretty crazy that when you are unpredictable and actually try to game plan for a fourth down, you can do it. And so that from the Titans just – it. I, I hated how they operate their game. Uh, they kind of force-fed Derrick Henry when they shouldn't have. He had 20 carries for 62 yards. That's 3.1 yards per carry. That's not good. And when the defense is focusing on Derrick Henry that much, it just feels like you should be throwing more. Ryan Tannehill's a solid quarterback. He didn't necessarily play well on Saturday, but he's a good quarterback, especially when you have A.J. Brown and Julio Jones, that you should almost force in the ball. Even you look at the last interception of the game for Ryan Tannehill, the one that kind of stepped in when he field goal for Cincinnati, he wasn't thrown to A.J. Brown or Julio Jones on that one. Again, contrast that to, say, the Chiefs. What happened in the game when they needed to make big plays? They threw to Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. When you're in big situations, you throw to your big guys, and they make the plays. And so that's why I'm actually – while I picked Tennessee to win this game, I'm happy that Cincinnati did. Because uh, Cincinnati, to me, felt like a team that wanted to win this game. At least from the standpoint of they went out and tried to win it. They were aggressive. They didn't just sit back and try and coast through this game. And so I'm really happy that Cincinnati won. I really look forward to seeing what they do next week. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, I'm really excited to see the Bengals next week. I thought they they came in, uh, they attacked well. They had a great Zach Taylor had a great game plan. They executed it very well. Uh, definitely next week going to have to protect Joe Burrow a little bit better. Um, uh, you know, it's amazing that they won the football game when your quarterback was sacked uh, nine times. You, you know, that's just unheard of. So definitely, hopefully, they can protect him a lot better next weekend. Um, against Kansas City in that AFC championship game. Uh, but um, I think it's just going to be a – I think it's going to be a totally different game with Kansas City than the game they had with Tennessee. I think it's going to be a shootout, and we'll get more into that next week. But um, I thought Joe Burrow did a fantastic job for being his first time being in the playoffs. He's looked really well his, through his first two games, and I think Zach Taylor and them just executed the game plan uh, much better than Mike Vrabel and his Titans. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a lot more about coaching than the actual skill on the field. Uh, transitioning into the next game, there's a second game uh, played on Saturday. And I think by all accounts, this could be the ugliest game of the weekend with the 49ers and the Packers. Uh, it was only 13-10, low-scoring game. And I don't even know if you could say it was good defense, more so just poor offense. Um, 
which and the ironic thing is I thought the Packers were going to be able to handle this pretty easily uh, considering, you know, they're playing at Lambeau Field. They were on to be at home this year. San Francisco coming all the way from the West Coast. They had uh, the weather. Yeah, the weather, the snow, the cold. Then not only all that, first drive of the game, okay? Packers get the ball. Six and a half minutes, they just marched on the field, and it was an incredibly easy drive for the Packers. What I mean by easy drive, they never faced a third down on that drive. So they just marched on the field. They scored a touchdown. Six and a half minutes of the game, you're like, wow, this is going to be easy for the Packers. Turns out the next 53 and a half minutes, all they could muster was three whole points. And so it's pretty crazy how it all seemed to be going the Packers' way, and then, bam, it stopped. Yeah, it uh, – I mean, it was – it was a game that had Green Bay written all over it to win, and they just didn't. And um, you th- you thought, like you said, you saw the first drive in the game, and you're like, "Oh man, this isn't this isn't even gonna be close. They're gonna run away with it. This isn't even gonna be a game." By the time we get to halftime, people can turn it off, get ready uh, for tomorrow. And San Francisco stayed right there. They got, I mean, and they just. Uh, had that grit and grind to stay in the game. And when it came down to it at the end, they kicked that game-winning field goal. And I think it did help with the the kicker they did have on their side. Um, with being, you know, their kicker, uh, with being in Chicago a few years, uh, you know, that kind of helped with being in that weather and, be, weather and be able to kick that field goal there in Green Bay. But I thought Jimmy G uh, did a great job. And I thought uh, Shanahan had a great approach, uh, adjusting down the stretch to Green Bay struggling. And uh, they came out on top because of it. And, uh, you know, this kind of gets into uh, more so with the Packers is, um, you know, this is this it for Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay? And is this the end of the era? Is this the end of the Devontae Adams era? You know, it's a big – a bunch of question marks with Green Bay uh, – going into the off season, you know, there's a lot of decisions to be made and I can't wait to see uh, where Aaron Rodgers ends up. If he ends up back or if he ends up in another place and if Devonta Adams follows suit with him, what do you think about it? Yeah, I don't think Rodgers returns to green Bay. Um, I think I saw that they have the second worst cap situation behind the saints uh, this off season. And at this point in his career, Aaron Rodgers doesn't want to rebuild. He wants to contend. And I don't know if it's going to be possible for Green Bay to be immediately contending next year with a quarterback making as much money as Aaron Rodgers does. Which begs the question, where is Aaron Rodgers going to play next year? And I don't believe he's going to retire. I know he's kind of joked about it in the past. He said, oh, I might. But I don't really take QB seriously. Or not just QBs, but athletes in general seriously. Especially when you're projected to make like $40 million next year. I don't think he's just going to give that up. Uh one intriguing trade option I saw, though, would be Aaron Rodgers traded to the Las Vegas Raiders for some sort of package. I think the package I saw was like Derek Carr and multiple firsts, which I don't know if Green Bay would do that. But if they say they did that, it gives them a quarterback and Derek Carr, who I think is better than people realize uh, for what it's worth, along with two first-round picks. I hope that they could use to improve the roster for cheap along with that. Because like I said, they're kind of in bad salary cap situation. But then, and I don't know if this would be enough, but if you can remember back far enough, in college, Derek Carr 
played with Devontae Adams. They were teammates at Fresno State. So could Devontae Adams stay in Green Bay with Derek Carr? Because behind Devontae Adams, the Green Bay receivers don't offer up much to the, to the table. So I, I think, ironically, if you have to choose between Rodgers and Devonta Adams, that they might keep Devonta Adams if they can replace Rodgers easily with like a Derek Carr. Because I don't know if there's a built-in uh, replacement for Devonta Adams on offense, and he's fantastic. I, I don't know if that would be enough to persuade Devonta Adams to stay, but I thought that was an intriguing option for you know where Aaron Rodgers could end up and how that could affect the Packers. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's an intriguing option for the Packers to try to keep somebody like uh, the great talent that Devontae Adams is because I think they kind of know they've probably lost Aaron Rodgers, you know, going forward. And, uh, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how much faith they have in Jordan Love that's kind of already waiting there or if they actually want to go out and get somebody that can help keep Devontae Adams in Green Bay in like a Derek Carr. Uh, I personally think uh, that the that probably the Jordan Love era starts um, more than likely in Green Bay. In terms of where Aaron Rodgers in terms of where Aaron Rodgers goes, I still think the best option for Aaron Rodgers and a team that would probably overpay and get the return that Green Bay is looking for would probably be uh, the Denver Broncos. Because um, I think they're tired of Denver's in that kind of situation where they're in a tough spot in their own division. They're up against right now uh, Kansas City and um, uh, the Chargers, who have two franchise quarterbacks and Justin Herbert and Patrick Mahomes. And I mean, even the Raiders have a much better quarterback situation than they do. So that's going to be a competitive division for many years to come. And I think to get them to win right now, they know bringing in some line like an Aaron Rodgers to kind of be a placeholder for a few years could help them tremendously and get them on a winning path and get into the playoffs um, because they always have, you know, a decent, decent build of uh build of offense and defense, pretty balanced on both sides usually there. And I think they're really just missing that quarterback, that big quarterback with a lot of talent and, you know, there's already weapons there in Denver for a experienced quarterback and a talented quarterback with Jerry Judy, Noah Fant, and Cortland Sutton or Sutherland. And but I think uh, I think the Broncos is the number one option for Aaron Rodgers. The other ones I think would be uh, Pittsburgh is a, definitely an option, but I don't know if Pittsburgh overpays. I still think Denver's the one that would overpay the most, and I think that's ultimately where Aaron Rodgers more than likely ends up next season. Yeah, it's a good fit for him. I think particularly because it depends, I guess, what Green Bay is looking for in return. But in a trade with the Broncos, you in theory could get back one of those young playmakers, whether it's Jerry Judy, whether it's Portland Sutton, Tim Patrick, Noah Fant, whoever it might be. I think you might be able to uh, put one of those guys into the deal for the Packers to sweeten it because the Broncos don't have a ready-made quarterback to give back to Green Bay. You know, they don't have a Derek Carr that could step in day one for Green Bay and be just fine. So they have to entice the pot uh, in different ways. And the Broncos have some cap space, so they have enough for, for Aaron Rodgers. So that's not a problem for them. 
along with that, with their cap space, I think there's a chance that maybe Devonta Adams wants to play with Aaron Rodgers. For Denver, it's a lot easier to part with a Jerry Judy or a Cortland Sutton or one of your young playmakers if there's a chance that Devonta Adams walks in the door behind him and just replaces that production, especially with the Aaron Rodgers connection. Well, I like the Broncos uh, shout there. I think that's a great thought for him. Uh, there was rumors that he was going to be traded there in the last draft, and it never quite came to fruition. So we'll see if that actually happens this time around and if Denver can get that deal done for a star quarterback. Yeah, and I think uh, I think they will. I think that's the number one option. That's something to look forward to this coming off season. But another quarterback that you know is kind of um, in the same kind of realm of where Aaron Rodgers is at this point in his career, or more downward, I guess, more farther in his career down this path. It's Tom Brady's Buccaneers, and you know that was this game was. Uh, Kind of lopsided for most of it, you know. Uh, the Rams came out with Sean McVay and just, you know, that first half just tore the Buccaneers apart. And, uh, I mean, just executed everything perfectly. Odell Beckham was unreal. Cooper Cup was doing his thing. And Matthew Stafford is finally in the playoffs and rolling, and it's nice to see. And then, you know, towards that, that second half, some costly turnovers by the Rams got the Buccaneers right back in that football game and Tom Brady doing Tom Brady stuff ties the game, you know, with a minute to go. And ultimately Stafford has that game winning drive down the field and the Rams kick the field goal to win the game. And it's the end of seeing the Buccaneers run in the postseason, And it's more like um, what's, what's next for Tom Brady and what's next for the Buccaneers because, you know, they, they returned everybody almost, almost 90, 9% of that team that was the Super Bowl team this year came back this year. And uh, now it's like, you know, you're not going to keep everybody this time around. You know, they're more than likely going to lose Chris Godwin in free agency. There's a, of course some core pieces on that defense that they're going to be losing as well. And they could also lose Tom Brady. So there's a lot of, a lot of question marks with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, just like there's a lot of question marks with those Packers. Uh, and it's more so is, is Tom Brady going to play pass this year or is he going to hang it up? I ultimately believe he'll uh, he'll keep playing another year, even if it's just one more year. I still think he's got one more year left in him, and I don't know why I think that. And I really do uh, think Pittsburgh is the best option for Tom Brady and a sneaky option. That could be a one year and uh, done for Brady to try to make in you know one of those deep playoff runs one last time and doing it in Pittsburgh with Mike Tomlin would be a lot of fun. Uh, but what are your thoughts with Tom Brady, Kyle? And do you see him playing past this year, or you know what 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 do you think all about this whole situation? I think it's a fascinating one. Um, Tom Brady is forty four years old. That's pretty incredible for a position player in football, a non kicker to be playing at that age. That being said, he was phenomenal this year. He didn't show any signs of like decline. Every time he has a bad game, people want to be like, oh, is Tom Brady down? And then he just comes back and throws a four touchdowns on the next game. So he's fine. Uh, but like you said, it's way would he play next year. Uh, it's incredible that Tampa Bay was able to bring back so much of their Super Bowl winning team. You almost never see that. It felt like basically a carbon copy of the Super Bowl team. And because of that, I just don't know if Tampa, if Tampa Bay is going to be able to re-sign Brady. 
again because I think finally it's going to kind of catch up to them with Cap and all that stuff. But then where does he play? Um, he's different from Aaron Rodgers in terms of he's a free agent. So thankfully, whatever team is acquiring him, there's no draft pick compensation or any sort of package that you have to get him. It's simply a financial commitment. Which begs the question of what is Tom Brady looking for? Is he a guy that's going to want 25, 30 million for a one or two year deal? Or is he a guy who would take a little bit of a lesser deal to get a ring? Now, I would tend to say he probably just wants the money at this point because he has, what is it, seven rings? Uh, <laughs> Too many so, rings. Yeah, I don't know if he necessarily needs to be ring chasing at this point of his career. You know, I think he's probably settled that legacy on his own. Um, but I, I don't think Tampa Bay is the option for him if he wants to keep playing. Possibly one situation I like for him. Now, I don't think it's going to work out cap-wise because they're always in cap hell, but yet they figure out a way to do it would be the New Orleans Saints. Uh, just think of an offense with Tom Brady and Sean Payton. And is it possible that a Tom Brady appearance in New Orleans would be enough to bring back Mike Thomas? I think it might be, at least for a year. Um and just think how the Saints have done the past couple of years without much of a quarterback. Yes, they had Drew Brees two years ago, but he couldn't throw the ball 20 yards down the field. And this past year, they had Jameis Winston, and they were doing well. He got injured. But yet, even with Trevor Simeon and Taysom Hill at quarterback, the Saints were able to still win nine games, go nine and eight, because they have a really good defense. And their offensive scheme is enough to get by and, like I said, win nine games. So you put Tom Brady there, and I think that'd be a great situation for him. I, I just don't know, again, if the cap situation fits there, which brings me to the conclusion that I, I think Tom Brady might retire. I, I hate saying that because he's such a great talent, and I, I think he clearly has some left in the tank, but I just don't think there is necessarily a spot for him I'm, don't get me wrong, there would be a spot. People would find a way to make a spot for Tom Brady. But, yeah, I just don't know where that would be at this point in time. Um, and going back to kind of the game that he played in this weekend, I think it was a exciting game, but I think people are going to kind of miss the turning point of this game. Uh, obviously, a lot of the focus is on the Rams collapse on the stretch, the Buccaneers comeback, right? You know, oh, Tom Brady rallied from 27-3 down. I think people are forgetting Tampa Bay went into the half down 20-3. to It could have been worse. Uh, with, you know, 30 seconds up in the first half, the Rams were inside the 10, and they were ready to score again. And Antoine Winfield Jr. caused a fumble and recovered at the one-yard line. Just think if they if the Rams were able to score there again and go up, say, 27-3 at halftime. Now, yes, the, the deficit that Tom Brady came back from in the second half, it would have been possible. But it felt like a little bit of the momentum switched there. A little bit got back on the Tampa Bay side. And at some point, a deficit is just too big to overcome. And I don't know if 27-3 at halftime... It would have been harder for Tampa Bay to come back from, especially since the Rams got the ball at the halftime. If they would have kept the momentum, maybe they scored there. And if it's 34-3 or 30-3, I think that game's a lot harder to come back from than what they did in the second half. And I really hope 
that this game, I, I'm glad that the Rams won uh, because I'm really happy for Matt Stafford. And he was a very good quarterback in Detroit, but I don't think people realize that because of Detroit. You know, everything that goes on with the Lions, they have been bad, terrible forever. I hope that's not how Matthew Stafford is viewed. And with that, I think people are going to look at this game as, oh, Matthew Stafford and the Rams collapse, when I wouldn't blame it on Stafford at all. The Rams fumbled four times, none of which were Stafford. Yeah, the Rams uh, put themselves in that situation to get yeah, a momentum I hope, shift. I hope it's more of a team collapse as opposed to Matthew Stafford, and I'm glad that he was able to redeem himself by having that drive at the end of the game to kind of put them in a position for the field goal and the win. Because I would have hated for people to use the old, oh, same old Matthew Stafford. He always collapses in big moments because I think that would have been really unfair to him uh, with the exact situation that occurred in this game. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I'm glad Stafford's finally getting some credit because, you know, he was kind of a – really, if we'll be honest, he was a wasted talent in Detroit for so many years, and now he's being put in the spotlight. He's going to his first NFC Championship game. And uh, it's it's really nice it's really nice to see because of the type of guy Matthew Stafford is and the type of guy he is on the field, and now he's got some actual talent around him and a great franchise, and he's going to the NFC Championship game against uh, cross town, uh, I guess cross cross state rival, uh, the San Francisco 49ers, and that's going to be one heck of a game that we'll be talking about next week. And finally, we're going to get to this last playoff game of the night. And it was the Bills and the Chiefs, and it was a fun one. You know, two quarterbacks that, you know, just, you know, are going to be killing and battling each other for many more years to come. And we've only just scratched the surface of what we could see out of these two uh, facing each other head-to-head with them both being in the AFC and Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. And, um, you know, I thought – you know, they, the Bills did a great job really containing the the Chiefs, even though, you know, I think the Chiefs probably led for more of the game than the Bills did. I thought they did all they could to contain uh, the Patrick Mahomes offense uh, for Kansas City. And then um, the Bills had it rolling on offense. You know, the Chiefs lost Tyron Matthew very early on in that game uh, yesterday. Um, and... Uh, I think the that kind of hurt the defense, and we saw, you know, Gabriel Davis for uh, said his name Gabriel Davis, I think is his name uh, for the for the Bills had two hundred receiving yards in a playoff game, and I mean they all came in, you know, in the back in the back of that defense and just ate them alive constantly with the deep throw, and that's something if Tyrod Matthews there with that leadership on defense, you know, maybe some of those passes doesn't happen. And uh, it just kind of killed Kansas City. And uh, then, you know, the Bills score with 13 seconds left and, you know, go and take the lead. And, you know, if you're any, you know, really, if you're anybody, um, you know, you think that game is over, you know, 13 seconds left. Um, You don't think much is going to happen. You're going to have to do one play, get as close as you can and then do the Hail Mary, you know, just try for some miracle, do some laterals, that type of thing. And they just uh, didn't have to do that. I do question the bills when they scored the touchdown and did the kickoff, they, you know, kicked it 
into the end zone for the touchback. I do question their ability not to uh, kick it on the ground or squib it to try to take some time off the clock where maybe it gives Mahomes one less play to do things with. And I think that could have helped that situation a little bit better. And uh, they didn't do that. And I was kind of, I kind of questioned that a lot. And then really it's still just remarkable that all it took for Patrick Mahomes was two plays and 13 seconds to get in field goal range. And a lot of people, even on the, on the TV broadcast during that game was just talking about getting uh, the chiefs kicker, Harrison Bucker into sitting the 60 yard range, you know, you know, he's got the leg for 60. Just get him there and just hope, you know, he makes one of those miraculous kicks. At least get him to 60. And they got him all the way to, I think it was a 45 yard that he ended up kicking. And to get him all the way to 45 with 13 seconds and to only do two plays, that's just remarkable. But like you said, uh, going back to the uh, to who the Titans uh, didn't attack with, uh, what did the Chiefs do in those final two plays? First play, they gave it to Tyreek Hill. Second play, they gave it to Travis Kelsey. And then they let it off to their, their kicker and Harrison Bucker. You throw it to your main targets, and that's what they did. And we went to overtime, and, you know, we can say what we want about overtime rules. That's another discussion for another day. Chiefs win the toss, and they score on their first possession, and they hit the AFC Championship game. You know, I know a lot of people probably want to see wanted to see the the Chiefs to lose that game, or you know Josh Allen to succeed with all the craziness that's happened in this year's playoff. All the big dogs have went down, and really, I guess the only big dog really standing is the Chiefs now. But it's just exciting to see what the AFC holds for the future because of all these young franchise quarterbacks that the AFC currently holds. You know, all across the board and. We're in a really good spot. The AFC is in a really good spot with young quarterbacks, whereas the NFC is a lot older, and you know they're they won't get much younger for a couple more years. So it's been really nice to see that we have this young core coming through in the AFC, especially since Tom Brady's gone now. That also helps, of course, to get this young core across for the AFC. So, what are your thoughts on the uh, the Chiefs Bills game down the stretch there? I think this was a game where you probably can't get better quarterback play than what we saw in this game. I think Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen played about as well as you possibly could at the quarterback position. Uh, Josh Allen threw for four touchdowns, 329 yards. Mahomes threw for three touchdowns, 378 yards. No interceptions or turnovers for either of them. Uh, just incredible QB play. I think this truly felt like a game where whoever got the ball last was going to win. And ultimately, that's what happens. Chiefs got the ball last. They won. But just big props to both of these uh, young teams, uh, both of the offensive coordinators as well. I want to give a huge shout out to both of them because I thought the game planning for this game was uh, pretty spectacular. That we talked a little bit how I thought the Titans didn't want to win with how they schemed. Both of these two teams did. Yeah, both of these uh, two teams adjusted and wanted to win throughout the entire game. Exactly. You saw both of them went for, on fourth down. They got their mobile quarterbacks moving. You know, it, it wasn't just a, well, put your big runner back in and run it up the middle. Because, you know, you get the defense moving, you get more chances to find a hole. I, I thought that was really cool to watch uh, in this game. If you like offensive football, this game is for you. And like we talked about uh, with the Titans, who didn't use their weapons, Tyreek Hill had 11 catches. Travis Kelsey had eight. It's pretty crazy what happens when you throw to your big guys a lot, when you force feed it to your big targets. 
they produce because they're good. And so it's sad to see the Bills and Josh Allen go down because I thought he didn't do anything wrong. It sucks that he lost the overtime coin toss. But the future for these two teams, I think, are both very bright with both of these quarterbacks at the helm. Speaking of which, you mentioned it, but, but the contrast between the AFC and the NFC is pretty incredible in terms of quarterback. Yeah, at, it's kind of crazy, to be totally honest. Yeah, you look at just the playoffs, for instance, uh, for this round. Who are the quarterbacks in the AFC? It's Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Ryan Tannehill. Now, Ryan Tannehill's not even, like, old, but he's the oldest of that bunch, which is saying something. You can't pass that with the NFC. You've got Stafford, Brady, Rodgers, and then uh, Garoppolo of the 49ers, who isn't old, and yet Fairlands on the wing, so they're kind of the one exception here. But it's the contrast between young and old. Along with that, those are just the previous we said in AFC in this round. That's not counting Lamar Jackson. That's not counting Justin Herbert. That's not counting a possible Deshaun Watson comeback. That's not even counting the three quarterbacks that take in the draft last year between uh, Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, Trevor Lawrence. The talent in the AFC quarterback room is incredible compared to what we have in the NFC, which is a lot of older quarterbacks. Not bad, per se, but older veteran quarterbacks as opposed to young upstarts that are going to be here for the next possibly 10 to 15 years. What do you think about that contrast in quarterback? Yeah, I think it definitely will start to shift here in a few years where it will be a little bit more balanced. But it, it is kind of crazy. Like, I don't know if there's been – to contrast with another sport, there's been this much, like, just so much leeway uh, leaning on one side of a conference. I guess you could kind of compare it to how the NBA, how much more competitive the Western Conference was at the Eastern Conference for many, many years. But in terms of like young talent and just digging into the players, how much better uh, the young core is in the NFL on the AFC side. And it makes you wonder kind of uh, did they, did some of these AFC teams change their shift their ways of thinking and how they draft over the last few years compared to these NFC teams. Granted these NFC teams do have established veteran quarterbacks. There's nothing against that. It's just, you know, it's just kind of odd that there's not, at least a you know a few a few handful that's the young core in the NFC. It's kind of more of a veteranship type thing, where it's just not that way in the AFC. I mean, you do have your veterans, but your veterans in the AFC, like you kind of stated, really isn't even like that old. I mean, they're older, but they're not you know on their deathbed about to retire old. So I think it's a fascinating. It's really fascinating to how to to. To the two of the conferences are so so different. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how that changes in the future. Does the NFC end up drafting more quarterbacks? But on the flip side, how does the AFC respond to this? Are they going to start drafting a lot more, say, defensive linemen, trying to get pressure on Mahomes, on Allen, on Lamar Jackson? How does the NFC respond to this uh, huge influx of quarterback talent? Because there's going to be a counter spring somewhere. I'm intrigued to see how that springs back in the balance. Uh, moving on to our next topic. There's not much to talk about this week because, well, with baseball, we're in the middle of a lockout. I don't know if you know that, Gersh. 
Oh yeah, it's it sucks. This lockout sucks. Who created lockouts? Who created the word lockout? Can we find yeah, terrible who, idea. Can we find that? Can we find that who created that word? I'm blaming I, I, I'm I'm blaming it. I'm blaming it on somebody next week. I mean I, I said we just blame Rob Randford. I'm fine with that. <laughs> you know, I, he seems to be the, an easy scapegoat. Yeah, sure. Uh, Let's but, it's Rob Manfred's fault. I'm fine with that. Part of the only big news I've come out recently is Carlos Correa actually switched agents in the middle of a lockout, in the middle of free agent, which is pretty wild to me. But he wasn't the only one who switched to Scott Boris. Correa did. Jonathan India did. Uh, I think Dylan Sousa as well. It's really some of the only news we have. I think it's kind of an interesting shift of agents in the middle of a lockout. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. Like, I mean, even if we weren't in a lockout to switch your agents middle of free agency, especially with, for example, with Carlos Correa, that is a free agent, switch your agents in the middle of your own free agency. Like, uh, I think it makes you wonder, like, was Correa with his uh, now uh, previous agent not getting the deal the deals offered that he thought he might be receiving because I, I, I firmly believe he was the top shortstop on the market. And then we saw the kind of deals that Marcus Simeon and Carlos and not Carlos, uh, Corey Seager got. And it makes you wonder if Correa, if you are the one that does believe Correa is the top shortstop in this free agent class, it makes you wonder like, man, maybe the price is really high that Carlos Correa has set for himself and no one has been willing to meet that demand and maybe uh, switching to Scott Boris, he's hoping someone can get him very close to the number that he's wanting. And, of course, Boris can make a lot of teams and ownership and general managers do a lot of things. You know, I think Scott Boris comes off as very intimidating, but also Scott Boris is a guy that knows, knows his stuff, knows his players, knows what he wants, and he's really good at getting his uh, – his, uh, players he represents what they want what they get in free agency or in terms even if they want to be moved at you know anywhere point in the season if they want to be traded from the franchise they want to be moved from so i think it's very interesting that he did switch mid free agency but also that like you stated um more people has already switched to scott boris this offseason so really we talk about teams winning the offseason scott boris has kind of won the offseason yeah i i agree and Scott Boris is a fascinating figure in terms of it seems like nobody likes him. It seems like fans don't like him. It seems like teams don't like him. It seems like the MLB doesn't like him. It seems like the media doesn't like him. But who does like Scott Boris? And that'd be his client. I think Scott Boris likes Scott Boris. Well, that's true. I think Scott Boris probably <laughs> does as well. But his clients like him, which I think at the end of the day means – regardless of how other people perceive him, he does a good job for the people that care about him and the people that rely on him, which I would love to sit on in on a Scott Boris like meeting with teams because like you said, maybe Carlos Correa wasn't getting the office he wanted. Um, I would love to know how Scott Boris goes in there and is able to up that offer based on, I mean, no games have been played since Correa stopped. You know, he doesn't have better stats. He hasn't I, – I, I don't know what's going to change in this regard for him. Um, yet, I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that Scott Boris is going to get him the best deal possible. 
Exactly. I, I, just, I would love to hear how that happens. Yeah, and I think, but, uh, uh, I think uh, like, with Scott Boris, like you said, it would be really fascinating. Like this, just for example, if you sit in on the meeting with this agent from, let's say, CAA Sports, compared to a meeting with Scott Boris, I think you would quickly see how much different the talks go and how quickly they change because, hey, I'm Scott Boris. Yeah, speaking of talks, uh, on Monday, the Major League Players Association and MLB are going to be meeting for the first time in a couple of weeks. And the Players Association is going to present their proposal this time. Last time it was the MLB and owners, this time it's the Players Association. And I'm hopeful that this actually brings some change. I know a lot of people are pessimistic with how long the lockout's lasting, but I think this proposal will start to get the ball rolling, particularly because I don't believe the MLB can afford to lose games. So I, I think with the deadline of spring training and opening day coming up, I think deadline spur action is something we'll start to give here. And if I had to guess, it's probably going to be a little bit of a caving on the owner's part because they've kind of won these last couple CBAs. And I don't think there's any way the Players Association can lose again with how everything's gone against them. I just don't see a way where the Players Association can possibly come away losing a third straight CBA. That just would not be a good look for them or a healthy environment for the players themselves. And what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, this is definitely where the players, uh, you would hope, need to win this time around. Because, you know, in other sports, you've seen where you know, it starts to sway different ways in other sports where the players in their last, let's say any other sports, last lockout or last strike, they got what they wanted and people are sort of listening to the, the players more in other sports. So you obviously hope this happens this time around with them meeting this time around. And I think the players don't want to budge. I mean, uh, they're, I think they're tired of how everything's been handled with the owners and, that they need they need a big win and it's time for change for them and uh but like you said the owners the players i think are okay totally dragging this out to get what they want but the owners don't want this to drag out because you know just a couple of years ago they lost so much money because of the pandemic and they can't afford to have that happen with another shortened season and two years of the last three you know that's just they saw how bad of an impact it had on them in 2020. And that's something they don't want to have to happen in 2022 either. So that's kind of where I think, you know, I'm kind of in agreement with you where I think the owners might uh, budge first because they know how much money they could lose in this uh, sort of situation. And the players I think can afford to, to lose the, the players can afford to drag this out because they have, they're kind of just like the owners. They have the money to drag this out, but the owners don't have as uh, as much money this time to drag it out like they did the first time. Yeah, and I think the owners are also going to give them a little bit because at the end of the day, while, yes, athletes are paid a lot, most of these owners are billionaires, if not very, very high up in the millions in terms of millionaires. And they're going to try I think try to play the good guys of oh look we gave in a little bit while still making a ridiculous amount of money um and I'm I think I'm in the minority on this I still think we get opening day on opening day I don't think we're going to lose games 
I think a lot of people think we are. My hope is that the talks on Monday kind of spur the action and it propels us to getting close or close, or I should say, to a deal. And hopefully they actually meet sooner than like two, three weeks apart every time. That's not going to work. Yeah, um, that's just going to get dragged out farther and farther, and we don't need yeah. that. Yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, speaking of things that are not going to work, <laughs> recently this week, the Rays got their dual city experiment uh, canceled. The MLB said, no, you're not going to be able to play in both Montreal and Tampa. That's just not happening. Thank God. We- yeah, it's, it's an incredible proposal that you think you could play half a season in one city and half a season in a different country. It's it just, just think how much of a hassle this for the players, their families. I, I just don't understand why this was a thing in the first place. I'm really glad that MLB kind of finally put a squash on it and said it's not happening. Yeah, they finally put that they finally put the hammer down with it and said, Hey, this isn't happening. And like, you know, I'm totally in agreement with you on this, you know, just think that's, you're basically, you got three homes. Now, if this was their car, you would have your home ballpark in Tampa, your home ballpark in Montreal, and then you're on the road, the other 81 games. So it's just, um, it's just like, man, you know, that that's, that's, that's tough on some players. And then if you also, you know, you think of a small market team like Tampa Bay, how much tougher that is on their players as well. Just, you know, I think it could be a little – I still don't like the idea, but it would be different if this team was a different market. But I still don't like the idea, and um, I'm glad it was shut down by the league. Yeah, and I actually think Tampa Bay can work where they are. The problem there is their stadium. That Tropicana Field is A, a bad stadium, but B, is in an absolutely terrible location to get to. And that's the primary reason why a lot of fans don't go. If you ever check out their TV numbers, they fare pretty well in TV numbers. They're not a team that lacks fan support. It's just an absolutely terrible stadium construction. And so my hope is this kind of spurs Tampa Bay to figure out a way to keep the team at the stadium, particularly because I don't – they've already kind of shown a – kind of a affinity for Montreal, you know, with this split season deal. I don't want Montreal to get another team. I know people love the Expos and love the old-timey stuff, but if you have lost a team within the last 25 years, I don't see a reason why you should be getting another one. Um, whether it's bad ownership, lack of fan support, you're showing you can't support that team. I'd rather try out new markets that ha- haven't been a failure in the last 25 years as opposed to a retread option. Yeah, and I'm with you on that. You know, Montreal losing the team that they already had. Like you said, everyone did love the Expos, and they eventually moved to Washington in D.C., and then became the Nationals. But Montreal, you saw their attendance there. They were they didn't have great ownership. They didn't have a, a great ballpark, to say the least. They didn't have nobody showing up, even if they were somewhat an average to an above-average baseball team. And – you know, if you lose that team, I, I'm with you as well. I don't think you should get it back, um, especially if it's been real fairly recent. That's still fairly recent for them when they lost their team. And I think there's other markets, like you stated, out there that is much more deserving. And, uh, and to, you know, to me, like, you know, Nashville's been rumored. Portland's been rumored. Uh, Vancouver has been rumored. I mean, and Vegas and, and Charlotte. I mean, there's a lot of – 
other options that are much better than going back to Montreal. For sure. And if, if you really, truly want to reach into the Canadian market, I think Vancouver is a great option. Because not only do you have a built-in rivalry with probably the Blue Jays because you're in Canada, with the Mariners because you're so close to them, it's on the opposite side of Canada. It, it's crazy how everyone refers to the, the Blue Jays as Toronto's team. Canada is a big place, you know? Uh, how crazy would it be where if everybody referred to the Milwaukee Brewers as America's team? And therefore, people in San Diego should really cheer for the Brewers. <laughs> That's essentially what they're doing in terms of like geography, like mm-hmm. where Toronto is located versus like Vancouver. It's just crazy that we don't have another team in that area. And so I think that would be a great place for a team. Because I think we're both in agreement on this, that eventually MLB is going to want to go to 32. Yeah. I actually think the Rays and A's are going to stay put. Um, as unlikely as that might seem, I think both of those teams are going to stay put, and that MLB is likely going to look for two expansion teams elsewhere in that regard. Yeah, and I hope, I, I personally hope that's what it comes down to, is two expansions, you keep the ones put. I think I think Tampa's more likely to stay put than the A's, because the A's um, is more about uh, fan support, and that, I mean, it's kind of with the stadium, too, with the Rays, but uh, they have the fan support problem that Oakland, that Tampa Bay doesn't have, which, you know, it sucks to see because, you know, Oakland's a great franchise. I mean, they're third in World Series championships. I mean, they've had success, but, you know, they just don't get people to come out to the ballpark. So if they do have to move a, a team to one of these markets, they want a team, I think that would be the more team to move than Tampa Bay. But I personally do – think that I, or I personally do hope that they both end up staying put and we get two expansion teams. I agree. And I think that'll come sooner rather than later, especially now that the lockout's over. I think you get the CBA pounded out. Uh, hopefully expansion will be next on the table. Hopefully the next five, 10 years, because I think, like we said, I, I think 32 is coming. It's just how we're going to get there. And then transitioning into our last topic here, I want to quick do a quick overview of the week in college basketball. I want to I want to hear from you, Gersh. Uh, who are some of your winners and losers from this last week? Yeah, um, my winners of the week. Uh, you know, one is uh, one is Villanova uh, because um, they're consistently improving each week. I mean, they. I I will say for people that uh, are listening to this, will listen to this. Uh, they did lose this week. But uh, they're a team that returned to everybody. They're finally fully healthy. And just think last year they went to the Sweet 16 with uh, being down their two top scores. They have them back. Uh, they, and they both – all those two top scores returned to school this year, adding to the – and adding to the freshmen that they had in the recruiting class. Uh, uh, I think they're consistently improving each week, and they're a team to look out for come March. Uh my other winner of the week is Auburn. Auburn, I, uh, uh, Auburn might be the best team in the country, and um, we'll see tomorrow with the AP poll uh, if they finally go to number one because they did have more first place votes last uh, last Monday than Gonzaga, but did not go to number one in the country. Uh, they had a tough week, and uh, they beat Kentucky at home. Uh, credit to Kentucky; they played them really close and tough. Uh, 
Uh, but Auburn came out on top, and Bruce Pearl's got maybe the best team in the country, or personally, I believe is the best team in the country. I think they would be Gonzaga. And, you know, I think Auburn plays the tougher schedule and the tougher teams. So uh, I hope come tomorrow we get to see hopefully Auburn and uh, the uh, number one team in the country. Yeah, and I'll quick give you my three for this week. I've got three winners and a couple losers. Uh, my first winner from this past week is the Boise State Broncos. I think they're kind of under the radar. People don't know who they are. They're playing the Mountain West. But they've won 12 straight games, including going 6-0 in the Mountain West. And what's more, most impressive about that for me is since – from January 12th to January 22nd, they played five games. That's basically a game every other day for 10 days straight. And considering four of these five games were on the road, the fact that Boise was able to sweep all of these games, these were including at Nevada, which typically pretty good, at New Mexico, which playing in the pit is a hard place to play, and then at Utah State and at San Diego State, the fact that they swept all of these games, I think it's really impressive. Uh, for them. And then another team that they got a really good week was Florida State. Now, we haven't talked about it yet, but the ACC is having a down year. They're struggling, to put it nicely. And there's not very many marquee wins in the ACC this year. One of them, however, would be Duke. And Florida State was able to beat Duke this week, and that's a huge win. That's a huge resume boost for a team in the ACC. Because, like I said, there's not very many other options. Along with that, they also beat Miami this week, and Duke and Miami are the two other teams at the top of the conference for Florida State. So the fact that you're able to beat both those teams in a week and gets a huge boost for them, and the team to look up in the ACC. Another team that I think won this past week is the Marquette Golden Eagles. You mentioned Villanova while playing well, lost game this week. Well, that game was to Marquette. Uh, Marquette went to Villanova, and they were able to win. Along with that, Marquette was also able to beat Top 25 Xavier, the fact that they beat Xavier, Villanova, and Seton Hall in the last 10 days or so, I think is an incredible three-game stretch. And they're a team who can make some noise. I be on the lookout for them. But on the flip side, uh, we've got the Texas Longhorns, who they lost this week to Kansas State. Um, if you've got Chris Beard, if you're a top 25 team that the Longhorns are, you just can't lose at home to Kansas State, who's last in the Big 12. Like that's just that's a bad loss. That's not something you should ever be doing. Uh, and then my last two losers for the week, one of them is Rutgers. Rutgers is a team that in the Big Ten, they were five and two. They were looking competitive. And their team that had aspiration to be at the top of the Big Ten, they lost at Minnesota on Saturday. And this is a bad loss because Minnesota played seven guys. And by seven guys, I mean five. Yep. Uh, three guys played 40 minutes. Two other guys played 37. Minnesota basically didn't use any subs. And considering Minnesota had two starters playing, they had three starters out. One of the people playing was a freshman who had only played 27 minutes all year, played a full 40. If you're Rutgers and you have serious intentions of competing in the Big Ten, that's a game you can't lose. You have to – I don't care if it's a road game at Minnesota. That's a game you have to win if you're serious about contending. And then – my last team, I'm going to say here, and Gersh, I think you'll have a little bit more, uh, you know, th- things to add to this, would be the Memphis Tigers. 
Uh, they lost to SMU this week, and Penny Hardaway was not very happy with the media. He kind of laughed out of them. And at the end of the day, I, I kind of say, Penny, I don't care how many guys you're down because A, the teams you played against are down guys too, and B, you're Memphis. You're supposed to be a top 10 team with all your top recruits and everything, and you're playing in the American. Okay, you're not in the Big Ten. You should be able to beat East Carolina and Tulane Tulsa. and yeah, all these teams, even down a couple guys. What, what are your thoughts on that situation? Yeah, um, I'm not uh, too happy with how Penny Hardaway handled the whole situation. I think it could have been handled in a much better situation. You lash out at the media, and he could have been frustrated with the game that just occurred, of course. But I look back at somebody that has a lot of fresh meat here. And someone that, I mean, never, never has, never has lashed out at the media because his team is young. I mean, he may repeat answers because, hey, we have a bunch of freshmen. Yeah, we're learning as it goes. Uh, Penny could uh, answer that in a more appropriate way. Like, yeah, we're young. We're down players, even if we are hurt. But we should be winning these games. But we're running as the fly, on the fly. And that's something with John Calipari in Kentucky that you've never heard from John. I mean, John will say, hey, yeah, I mean, we, we may have lost that game because we're youthful. But he's not going to lash. He, he's never lashed out at the media because he's frustrated with his team alongside, uh, oh, yeah, we're down players, so get off my back for losing to Tulane or Tulsa or whoever they might have lost to. You know, that's something we're pinning hard away. I just don't think has handled the Memphis job very well. He's recruiting well there, but I think the real problem with Penny Hardaway is, is Penny Hardaway actually a good basketball coach? That's the big question. Is Penny Hardaway great NBA player, great recruiter, but is he the great, is he the great, is he a good coach? And I think that's a topic we could discuss future down the line, but my losers of the week, uh, I only got two. Uh, my first one is Loyola. Uh, they've been playing really good under first-year head coach Drew Valentine, who's the youngest coach in Division One basketball. But they um, they had a tough week, um, and they lost a game they really shouldn't have had to Missouri State. Missouri State is not terrible, but they're not great either, and they lost that one pretty decently. So that's kind of a concerning loss. Uh, it will be nice to see how they rebound this week with who they have on their schedule and see if they can sweep the week, which uh, if they do, I think they'll be right back on the right track. And Valentine – knows how to get them there. And my other team I'll, I'll put on the losers is uh, North Carolina. And North Carolina, um, you kind of touched on it when you mentioned Florida State. Um, the ACC is really down this year in terms of talent level. And there's really kind of like – I mean, I really don't even know if there's a – I mean, a go-to ACC team that I'm like kind of – I would even be frightened of that say, hey, man, I'm going to play that team. I think Miami has showed highlights of that at time, and Duke has as well. But with North Carolina, you know, they, they just gave up 98 points to Wake Forest the other night. I mean, that's the most points they've given up to a team in 25 years. And I think more and more as we get deeper with this, uh, this era with their new head coach, Hubert, it's going to be, is he the right coach for the job? And, you know, he's going to get a lot of criticism. And I still think, you know, you got to give the guy some time. But North Carolina, for as down as this ACC is, they shouldn't be a part of the group that is down in the ACC. They are North Carolina for a reason, 
and they shouldn't be where they're at currently in the current standings in the ACC. I agree completely. Uh, and now to kind of transition to the ending, a little bit of a preview for next week. If you guys happen to like today's episode, if you want to tune in next week, this is going to be more baseball next week. Uh, hopefully the meetings on Monday produce some actual substance that we can talk about, whatever comes from that. Uh, along with something else, we're going to have a new baseball Hall of Fame class in theory on Tuesday. Is it going to be David Ortiz? Hopefully. Is there going to be anybody else? That'll be something we could definitely get into, as well as we'll be a week closer to the trade deadline, the NBA, any news, rumors that come out between now and then we can discuss. We have should have two great NFL games this coming weekend that we can look forward to as well, along with the ever-changing college basketball landscape, the ever-changing uh, huge thing possibly to get into is the transfer portal. Is it good for college sports? Is it good for schools? Is it good for the players? Come back next week. Maybe you'll find out. Uh, any thoughts on that, Gersh? No, I'm I'm excited for uh, next week. We got a lot to dig into, and uh, I think um, you know there's a lot of topics uh, we could discuss next week. And I hope uh, maybe there's a big a big NBA trade. That's what I'm kind of hoping for. I hope a big trade happens this week that we can discuss next week on the show. And uh, of course, uh, like uh, like you said, like you said, uh, we appreciate anybody that takes their time out of their day to listen to this. And of course, we appreciate any feedback as uh, we're in the early process of this podcast. We'll we appreciate all the uh, all the support and all the feedback we'll get from you guys to learn how to continue to get better at doing this. But I think that's it for this episode. I'm I'm your host uh, GM Gersh, and uh, this is the first episode of the Final Whistle. And I'll I think this is it, man. I think this is a great first episode. I'm your host GM Gersh. My co-host Kyle Weinmeyer. Peace. <laughs>